Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this beautiful gift of marriage that we see here in Genesis chapter 2, and uh, Lord, that you make that a blessing, um, both for those who are called into marriage and those who are called to be single. And uh, Father, we pray that this morning you would help us to understand this mystery. Lord, open our eyes to understand your word and to understand ourselves on a deeper level. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, there's probably uh, no topic today more volatile. There's no hotter topic today on the streets or in the media than the topic of human sexuality and identity. Agreed? So whether it's who gets to define marriage or who gets to define sexual morality or who gets to define gender identity, you can hardly watch 25 minutes of television or Netflix without some sort of statement being made, usually in the direction of total freedom for the individual. Now, however you and I might feel about this state of affairs, I think it's important to admit that God has indeed granted human beings the free will to do what they want with their bodies. It's actually true. The story of the Garden of Eden is the story of a God who grants people a choice. He doesn't program us to obey him like robots. However, as the theologian Christopher West points out, we are not free to determine whether what we do with our bodies is good or evil. Make sense? West continues, he says, As Adam learned, freedom is fully realized not by inventing good and evil, but by choosing properly between them. So when it comes to topics of human sexuality and identity, human beings are indeed free But we're not free to invent morality or to invent reality. So if we're not free to invent morality, how can we come to know the truth about these hot topics? Well, did you know that the Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God and the most loving man who ever lived, spoke directly to these very topics? It's not often recognized, but it's true. In our gospel reading today, in Matthew 19, Jesus is in a bit of a debate with some of the Pharisees about the issue of divorce, when it's biblically valid and when it's not. And in the midst of the conversation, he lays out some foundational teachings on both gender and marriage. And he does this by pointing us back to the beginning. That's what Jesus always does, points us back to the beginning. Will you please turn there with me real quick to Matthew 19? It's on page 824 of your pew Bible. And looking down at Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6, Jesus says this. He says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then commenting on that, Jesus says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. 
or as the King James Version famously put it, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Now the first thing to notice in verse 4 is that according to Jesus, our biological gender, our maleness and femaleness, is something that God actually made and established from the beginning. And then he goes on in verses 5 and 6 to define marriage as a covenant and one flesh union between one man and one woman, which establishes a new family and calls for exclusive lifelong fidelity. Exclusive lifelong fidelity to that covenant. Now, you may have recognized that Jesus is drawing directly in this passage from the story of the marriage of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. But did you notice that that Jesus, in this passage, claims to be quoting from God himself? Did you notice that? Look at the passage. Look at at verse 4 and 5. It says, uh, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, in other words, God, uh, and then right at the beginning of verse 5, and said, so in in other words, Genesis 2.24 is not merely the editorial reflections of a culturally bound prophet. They are the very words of God. They're reaffirmed here by the Son of God. And they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to be recorded in Holy Scripture. This is the standard. This is the unchanging norm established by God in the beginning. So what does Jesus say when the Pharisees try to root their understanding of marriage in something else? He says, hold hold on, hold on a second. From the beginning, it was not so. Right? Now, it may surprise some of you to learn that Jesus is actually more biblically conservative about sexual purity and divorce than even the Pharisees. Right? We think of the Pharisees as the real litigious ones, the people who are real super serious about the Old Testament. But Jesus is actually more conservative about these things than they are. However, unlike the Pharisees, Jesus is also just so gracious, and he has such an open heart toward people, that tax collectors and prostitutes, sinners, all flock to Jesus throughout the Gospels. And I really think that this is how the church is supposed to be when it comes to marriage. Biblically conservative in our teaching, but open and merciful to a hurting world. Mm-hmm. Pope Francis has said that it's one thing to be understanding of human weakness and the complexities of life, and another to accept ideologies that attempt to sunder what are inseparable aspects of reality. He says we are called to protect humanity, and this means in the first place accepting it and respecting it as it was created by God. So today, in our Genesis series, we come to what's really the source of the river. The place from which all clear biblical thinking about marriage and sexuality and gender flows out. So please turn there with me to Genesis 2, 18 through 25. It's on page 2 of your Bibles. The first part of this passage discloses the purpose of marriage. Why God established marriage in the first place. And the second part discloses the nature of marriage. What is marriage according to our Creator? And between these two sections, we'll actually take a break 
to explore a little bit more about this topic of creational gender. So am I standing in enough of a firing squad, culturally speaking, today? All right, please pray for me. So we begin with the purpose of marriage, why God established marriage in the first, in the first place. In the prologue of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, it says that marriage was ordained by God for three purposes. First, the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Second, as a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication. And third, for mutual society, I love this, very British, help and comfort that the one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. And I think it's really this third point that we see most emphasized here in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the creation story in Genesis chapter 1, and we noticed this refrain after each step of creation, that God saw what he had made, and he saw that it was good. All right, so he saw this, the light, and he says, it's good. And he saw the seas, and he says, it's good. And he saw the animals, and he says, it's good. Right? So it's, it's actually a little bit shocking, a little bit striking that we come to a place just a few verses later in this narrative where God looks at something and says, it is not good. He looks at the man and he says, it is not good. Now, that's not, he's not saying that man isn't good in and of himself. He's saying there's something incomplete here. There's something missing here. Man wasn't created to be a solitary creature, right? And so, um, so um, we are made for relationships. That's why solitary confinement is one of the cruelest forms of torture. But what does God mean when he says, I will make a helper fit for him? Verses 19 and 20 give a backstory about God bringing all the animals before Adam to be named by him. And so Adam's like, polar bear, penguin, platypus. Although it's probably in Hebrew. And it says, whatever the man called every living creature, that, that was its name. Now in this context, naming something meant that you had a certain authority over it. And this was an example of Adam exercising the kind of dominion that God had given humankind in Genesis 1, verse 28. But even after God had finished parading all the animals before Adam, and as glorious and as beautiful as some of the animals are, and I love watching these nature videos and these beautiful birds and these beautiful animals, but it says in verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So there's that same phrase again. Let's break it down a bit. The first thing to say is that the word helper used here in Hebrew is azer. It's not a pejorative word at all. It doesn't describe someone who's lesser. In fact, in the Bible, it's most commonly, though not exclusively used, um, to describe the kind of helper that God is to mankind. And so Psalm 70 verse 5 says, But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, Azer. You are my Azer and my deliverer. So to be a helper is actually a role of dignity in the Bible. 
Now, when I think of the role of helper, I like to think of Samwise from the Lord of the Rings, right? So you've heard me say this before. It was Frodo's mission to destroy the ring, and it was Sam's mission to help Frodo. So essentially, they, they have the same mission in their lives to destroy the ring, but they have different roles in that. And actually, as you read the story, um, it, it, really, you, it really is fair to say that Sam is just as much the hero, if not actually more so the hero. And I, I think actually historically speaking, it's probably the case that there's a whole bunch of unsung mothers that are more so the heroes of human history um, than even Frodo. But either way, it's not, that's not really the point. The point is that a helper can be somebody of equal or even greater value than the person that they're helping. Now, I like the point that Fumi made last week about this passage, that part of the reason why God created woman was because Adam truly needed her help to do the things that God had given him to do. Just like he couldn't be fruitful and multiply on his own, Genesis 1.28, so he also couldn't fulfill his vocation in the garden to work it and keep it without the woman's help. But not just any helper would do. The platypus wasn't enough. The polar bear wasn't enough. Because Adam needed a helper fit to him. Or as your text note says, corresponding to him. In other words, he needed a complementary partner. In his call as a gardener, he needed a helper who had complementary strengths, not just the same strengths and weaknesses he has. And his, and his call to be fruitful and multiply, he needed a complementary sexual partner. Did you know that the body of a man and the body of a woman, they're complete in all their systems but one? Right? Their reproductive system. Every cell in a man's body has 46 chromosomes, except one. Every cell in a woman's body has 46 chromosomes, except one. The sperm cell and the ovum each have 23. So in a sense, God intended in our very biology for man and woman to complete one another. And so continuing on in, verses 21, in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, or he took his, his side, and closed up this place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So he was the first father to give away his daughter. And the great Bible commentator Matthew Henry writes that a woman was not made out of the man's head to rule over him, nor made out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Unlike the animals or any other beautiful thing that Adam had encountered in all creation, here at last was a complementary partner fit for him. And he's so excited, he gives us the first poem in the entire Bible. It might not be a particularly profound poem, but here it is, verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. These words that are used here 
are the kind of words used in Hebrew for somebody who's a part of your family. Right? We talked about forming a new family. She shall be called woman, he says, because she was taken out of man. So she was the first woman in the whole world besides Adam to share in the dignity of being created in God's image. And because woman not only had a body like animals, but also a soul like Adam, she, like him, also had personhood. That's what he was looking for. I mean, some of the animals, they'd make good pets, they'd make good friends in a way, but he was looking for another person to interact with. As one commentator put it, she was not just a body, she was somebody. Now, all this doesn't mean that people who don't get married and have kids are somehow less of a man or less of a woman. Jesus didn't get married, and he was the perfect man. Paul never had kids, and he was the most prolific missionary in the New Testament. There are also uh, many famous women in the Bible who are not married. For example, there's the businesswoman, Lydia, the dealer of purple cloths, who hosted a house church in Philippi. She was likely a widow. There's the elderly prophetess, Anna, who was kind of like a nun. Luke, 20, uh, Luke 2, verse 37 says, She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And all of these people became what Jesus referred to as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And for this reason, from the earliest days, singleness has always been honored in a special way by the church. Even if it feels like it's a bit dishonored in our day. I still remember at our church in Pittsburgh when uh, this woman became an Anglican nun. Now, you might not have ever heard of such a thing. It's not super common in our cultural context. Uh, but she became a nun, and there was this service that was kind of like a wedding service between her and the Lord. And I remember my girls were endlessly fascinated by this. They're like, we want to see her marry God. <laughs> this is going to be awesome, you know. And, uh, and I just have to say, as a father, I would be so proud if either of my daughters were called to singleness in the kingdom. If they were called to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because this is actually what marriage was always pointing to. Eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God are revealing something on earth that's actually true in heaven. That our earthly, the earthly marriage between man and woman points to the marriage between Christ the lover and the church his beloved. And so when people walk into that on earth as it is in heaven, it's actually demonstrating to the world that our true intimacy, our lasting marriage is found in the Lord alone. Right? And anybody who's ever been married quickly learns, oh, you can't be Jesus for me. <laughs> and I can't be Jesus for you. I guess I still need Jesus <laughs> to be Jesus. And this is why the church is always female in the scriptures. You notice that? Because we are the bride of Christ. The original marriage in the garden points to the final marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. Now, before moving on to the nature of marriage, I want to pause to consider the topic of gender and how it relates to creation. The root gen that we find in the word gender, as well as words like generate and genetics and genitals, 
And even Genesis means to produce or to give birth to. Therefore, a person's gender identity is related to the way that that person is designed to generate new biological life, whether they do it or not. This is something we inherit at birth. It's not something we can invent. In the old days, Christians used to speak about God revealing himself through two books. They talked about the book of Scripture and the book of creation. And these two things were never interpreted in contradiction to one another. One another. Both were respected as sources for human knowledge of God and for awe-inspiring wonder. So for this reason, uh, some of the greatest theologians of the past, Thomas Aquinas, also studied the physical sciences. And some of the greatest science, scientists of the past, Isaac Newton, was also a theologian. They would have considered it absurd for any believer to do theology with sort of a blind eye toward creation around them, with no sense of reflection on the world that the God they claim to believe in has made. As David says in Psalm 19, where he reflects on both the book of creation and the book of Scripture, he says in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night after night reveals knowledge. So creation reveals knowledge about God. If God is our creator, then the skies and the seasons and the animals and even our bodies, even what our bodies are like, all reveal knowledge about our creator. Amen? Amen. Now, it's been common among Christians today, even Bible-believing Christians, to neglect the book of creation as a source of knowledge. As if it's just us and the Bible in a vacuum. We reflect very little on our bodies, for example, as a clue to our vocation and identities, but these things actually matter. For example, when it comes to gender, there are clear biological differences between men and women. Am I crazy? So, no? <laughs> men tend to be larger and stronger. They have 30 to 40% more muscle mass per pound than women, while women tend to live longer and have greater balance and agility. Some of these differences are also non-physical. Though the sexes are equal in, in intelligence, women tend to have greater verbal aptitude than men. And men tend to have greater spatial aptitude than women. It's part of the ways that our brains were designed. And on a psychological and hormonal level, men are more aggressive, competitive, less risk-averse, whereas women are more social, communicative, and nurturing. And though both sexes were created with equal dignity, we must ask the million-dollar question, what is the significance of the fact that only women were created with the special grace of being able to bear children? What's the significance of that? This is a question that simply cannot be interpreted as if it was somehow arbitrary on God's part. And from a Christian perspective, it doesn't go away simply because human beings literally altered God's design for sex and marriage in recent, recent history through the pro proliferation of birth control. 
I mean, it, it's li- this is very recent in human history. It's changed the way that we think about ourselves and everything. But that doesn't cause this question to go away from a Christian perspective. The fact is that our Creator has equipped the woman's body not only to give birth, but to produce all the food and nourishment that babies need. They actually carry that around and produce it from within their own bodies. That's significant. And since a baby, as all parents can testify, need to eat like every two hours, and formula, though super helpful, is also only a recent invention, who do you think that God designed to be in closest proximity to the baby? Friends, read the book of creation. Wouldn't you say that in these ways, a woman's body pours out speech and reveals knowledge about God's design if we only had eyes to see? I don't know whether all this sounds obvious or controversial to you this morning, maybe both. But either way, for believers, these are things, these are realities, these are mysteries that are worthy of our deep reflection. Chris and I were recently watching this documentary on Netflix called Babies. Have any of you seen this show? It's all about the science behind birth and childhood and the bonds between mothers and fathers. And these bonds are really deep, and there's a chemical component to these, right? And uh, when we were watching the first episode, there was this really interesting... um, uh, there's this scientist who was talking about this really interesting reality that when a woman gives birth to a baby, um, the, her, a part of her brain called the amygdala is activated, and it never turns off for the rest of her life. <laughs> as long as she has kids, no matter how old they are, it never turns off for the rest of her life. Now, have you ever wondered, uh, women... Uh, why, um, when the baby's young, uh, you wake up at the smallest stirring. In fact, you probably are already awake. And meanwhile, your husband is just sort of snoozing away, even when the baby is screaming bloody murder. Well, that's because your amygdala has been activated, and that didn't happen for him. Now, the interesting thing that you find is that, this is, this is a part of a gender difference, but the interesting thing that you find is that human beings are also pretty adaptable. Because if, if man's sort of primary role is as leader and protector, they still have a secondary role as nurturer and caregiver, right? Just as a woman will step in as leader and protector, right? And so, so when, when, uh, when in the absence of a mother, if there's like an alcoholic mother or there's a tragic accident or, the, or they split up and the man is the primary caretaker of the baby, scientists have actually found somehow that amygdala part of his brain is actually activated too. Isn't that really interesting? So um, there's a sense in which um, creation has assigned roles to us as men and women when it comes to the care of children. But on the other hand, God has also made us adaptable to atypical circumstances. So in a few differences between men and women, the difference in roles is absolute. But in most cases, I think it's fair to say whichever partner is better suited for a task They're usually the appropriate one to do it. (laughs) Now, someone might ask, well, why then does the Bible seem to give man a role of authority and leadership in the marriage relationship? And this is a good question. 
So let's turn now from the book of creation to the book of scripture. Because I think it's dishonest to ignore this theme of male headship in the Bible. And since we ultimately trust that God is good, we only avoid these things to our own detriment. It's true that man and woman, according to Genesis 1.27, are equally value, uh, are of equal value and dignity. And they equally share the image of God. But it's also true that Adam names woman, here in verse 23, signaling that the husband was given authority in this relationship even before the fall. He doesn't name her Eve until after the fall, but he names her woman before the fall. In fact, when the Apostle Paul comments on Genesis 2, in our reading from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, he, ref he references the helpmate rule and says, quote, that man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So the New Testament affirms that the husband's leading role is part of God's creational intent. However, Paul is also eager to communicate a sense of equality. And so right in the verses after this, did you notice? He says in verses 11 and 12, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For, a woman was, for as a woman was made from man, he's referencing Eve being made from Adam's side, he says, so now man is born of woman. And then just to clarify things even further, he says, and all things are from God. So recognize where true authority comes from. So if men and women are equal and both are under God, then why does God even need to specify on this issue of authority? I think a big part of our problem is that we think of authority primarily in terms of power and probably primarily in terms of the abuse of power. This is kind of the cultural moment we live in. We think about things like that. We've been super influenced by people like Marx and otherwise. But the Bible primarily speaks of authority in terms of responsibility and service. In essence, the message of the Bible two leaders are, it's like this. Do you want to be a great king? Then set aside your own desires and make sure that there's justice, especially justice for the most vulnerable. Do you want to be like a real man, a manly man? Then set aside your own desires, serve your wife, and lay down your life for her. So this is not the way that fallen man thinks of leadership. But it's the way that true authority works in the self-giving nature of God. As Jesus said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Paul roots male headship in the nature of God. He says in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 11, verse 3, he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. In other words, true headship is rooted in God the Father who loves the world so much that he gave his own, only son. And true submission is modeled by Christ who loved the world so much that he willingly offers up his own body. So God the Father is the head of Christ just as the husband is the head of the wife. Yet no orthodox theologian would ever claim that God the Father and God the Son were somehow unequal, right? 
Just as no orthodox theologian would ever claim that man and woman are unequal. The apologist Peter Kreeft puts it this way. He says, The biblical vision of sexuality rejects both chauvinism, which sees sex, either, which, which, excuse me, which sees one sex, either one, as superior, and unisex, which sees the two sexes as different, but only by social convention, not by nature. He says God has created men and women by nature to be different but equal in value. Chauvinism and unisexism share the common false assumption that all differences must be differences in value. That's just not what the Bible teaches. So we've talked about the purpose of marriage. We've talked a bit about creational gender. And now stick with me a little bit because I want to end by talking a bit about the nature of marriage, what marriage actually is. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, if you'll turn back there with me. God says, according to Jesus, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now we've already looked at Jesus' quotation of this verse, and that he defines marriage as a covenant and one flesh union between one man and one woman, which establishes a new family and calls for exclusive lifelong fidelity. But let's unpack this a little bit more. First of all, Marriage is a covenant because this phrase hold fast or cleave is used specifically in the Old Testament in reference to forming a binding covenant. It's a one flesh union because in the mystery of the sacrament of marriage, God performs a miraculous unification of man and woman. Jesus affirms so they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is why marriage is inaugurated by covenantal vows And it's consummated by sexual intimacy. And actually, there's still laws in many countries today to where if if it's not consummated in sexual intimacy, it hasn't yet become a legal marriage. And one miracle actually leads to another because the one flesh union of man and woman leads to the procreation of children. And because every child is endowed with a soul, with the very breath of God, Their conception and birth is actually a miracle. It's actually a miraculous thing. It doesn't just seem that way. It actually is that way. Now, we learn that this union is also between one man and one woman. So according to Genesis, polygamy and polyamory is not part of God's original plan. Marriage and sexual intimacy were originally intended to be exclusive. Yes, there are examples of polygamy in the Old Testament, even among heroes like Abraham or Solomon, but polygamy is never actually affirmed by God in Scripture, and uh, it's never practiced in the New Testament. And if you actually read the stories, it actually, it always turns out bad, right? And so there's a reason for this, Jesus would say, because in the beginning it was not so, right? So our original design, also for one man and one woman, also rules out homosexual marriage. Biblical marriage is spiritually and biologically dependent, according to Scripture, on complementary genders. That's what the Scriptures teaches. Marriage is more than a piece of paper, 
a legal document that offers some kind of social status and tax benefit. It's more than a ceremony of the church, which may or may not be conducted in a way that honors God, our Creator. From a biblical perspective, marriage is defined by God, and so everything that deviates from God's definition actually falls short of what marriage is. Next, the passage speaks about establishing a new family. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And this leaving and cleaving is an intentional, decisive act. You don't just stay in your mommy and daddy's family. right? You don't don't just live in their basement forever. You start a new family. You don't just mooch off your parents forever. You start to provide for your new family. Amen? Amen. And it also, lastly, talks about lifelong fidelity. These relationships are intended to be permanent. As Jesus puts it, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And it's sad that I even have to say this, but marriage does not allow for the introduction of new sexual partners, even by mutual consent. So this original marriage, it's between Adam and Eve. It's not between Adam and Eve and their mutual friend Jane. Right? Because according to Scripture, orgies are just another form of adultery. And Paul declares that people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21 And so if that's you and you've never confessed and repented of your sins, I urge you to do so, so that these harsh warnings may not apply to you. So again, marriage is a covenant and one flesh union between one man and one woman, which establishes a new family and calls for exclusive lifelong fidelity. Now, all this might sound hard and weighty, but Crafe reminds us that the better and more important something is in and of itself, the more serious and harmful its moral abuse is. He says we have rules for careful use of precious works of art, not for paper clips. And sex, guys, it's a beautiful gift. It's a holy gift when it's received according to God's purposes. Verse 25 presents a picture of this when it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Maybe some of us have never experienced sexual fulfillment without a sense of shame. Maybe that's something that you've never experienced. I know that Carissa and I have our own story of the Lord working us through sexual immorality in our own stories. Christopher West puts it this way. He says, Jesus does not accept the normalization of our fallen humanity. In effect, he is saying something like this. You think all of the tension, conflict, and heartache in the male-female relationship is normal? This is not normal. This is not the way God created to be. Something is terribly wrong. And yet God in his grace is able to restore these things. This is the spiritual battleground. Guys, there's a reason why Ephesians 6 comes after Ephesians 5. And I'm not just being cute. There's a reason why the teaching on marriage is followed up, and Ephesians 5 is followed up immediately in Ephesians 6 on the teaching of spiritual warfare. These things are to be battled for. These things are to be prayed for. And we need one another to support each other along the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.